for the best and brightest moment of your week. It's time for that show you love and that show that you seek. It's time for nonsense. 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 The show. The best damn show you That's right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Nonsense the Show Season 2. It's the second season of Nonsense the Show, which means automatically it's going to be the biggest, the baddest, the grandest, and the most nonsensical. Um, we got a nice show for you today. Uh, I'm calling this episode 202, Captain Nick Takes a Ship. Um, (laughs) which obviously gives you a little bit of a hint about what this entire show is going to be about. Um, There's a story I'm going to tell you. There's some interesting things I'm going to read to you. And uh, I got a fun fact I think you'll like. Finish it off with a nice song, something different, something you maybe haven't heard before. Get you exposed to a little something different, a little something nerdy. Who knows? Um, I'm very excited. I'm very excited, you guys. Uh, you know, I've spent a couple of years, I'm just going to give you guys a quick little brain dump before we get going here, just cause that's what I do. Um, I've spent a couple of years trying to hang my piracy up, re-enter the real world and be a mature, responsible, normal adult again. Um, I've tried to find regular jobs. I've tried to start regular companies. Um, some success, you know, there's some things still in the works that hopefully will come out well and, and provide me some, uh, funding to continue doing what I like to do. Um, but what I've found over and over is that every time I try to step back into the quote unquote real world and behave like a normal person, it bums me out. And it really, I, I, I tend to spiral out, have a lot of troubles. It's problematic. So I am slowly but surely re-embracing my pirate side, finding a way to evolve it, grow it, and uh, adapt it to the world I'm living in now. One of the things I'm doing is bringing back nonsense to the show so that I have an outlet for my creative energies that I can share immediately with you. And so that I can slowly but surely um, practice and regain and get comfortable speaking long form again. You know, there, there was a period of time where I was doing things like this every single day, especially in 2020. And really since Toby died in the last two years or so, I haven't done a lot of this at all. I haven't done podcasting. I haven't, you know, I've done some stuff on Instagram, um, which we'll talk about later, but um, I haven't really had a way to interact with people. I hadn't had a way to feel creative. I haven't had a... F- found a way to kind of get that good positive re-encouragement, reinforcement, boost the ego, boost the uh, the confidence, all that kind of good stuff. So this is um, just an opportunity for me to kind of just get warmed up again and start feeling like myself again, you know? So thanks for coming back. Thanks for tuning in. We're going to try to get this thing going once a week. We're going to try to keep it interesting and exciting for you guys. Hopefully it'll be good enough that in a week or two when I launch my Patreon, um, you guys will be uh, willing to just throw me a couple bucks a month. Throw me four or five dollars, you know, it'll go a long way for me. Um, I have a few <clears throat> really fun things kind of in the works. Unfortunately, they're, they're fun things that take a while for me to build the skills and develop properly. And so I'm trying not to talk about them too much, but we all know me. I have a hard time not talking about the exciting things that are going on in my brain, um, especially when everything everybody wants to talk about is how difficult the year is, how sad we all are, how much we're struggling, all the terrible things that are happening, all the people that are breaking the rules or behaving in a way you don't like, and on and on and on and on. I'm exhausted by all that. I can't affect any of that in a positive way. So my choices are either to join everybody and complain and mope and be upset all the time, which I'm doing plenty of, trust me, um, or try to find a way to feel a little bit more positive about it. Try to find a way to 
to get myself out into the world and, 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 and build something that's going to make me feel better. Boom. Nonsense. The show. Welcome back. I thought about doing another podcast, um, starting something fresh, but really what it came down to was number one, I really like the format of nonsense. The show, I think it's a perfect, a perfect little escape from what we got going on in the real world. Um, I think it's a great name. I think it's a great theme song. Uh, the theme song is one of my proudest musical accomplishments. I think I talked about that in episode one. It's been a little bit, but, uh, yeah. So for now, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm putting out to you. Um, soon enough, I'll start the, the Patreon for those of you that feel like the work I'm putting out is worthy of you throwing a couple dollars my way. Um, please know that, that you're going to keep getting episodes of nonsense regardless. That's just a way for me to start bringing a little bit of income in with, because these shows take a long time to put together. I mean, this is, you know, it's, it's several hours worth of work outside of just sitting down and talking. So, um, I, I, I had forgotten in the three years or whatever, since I did one of these, I had forgotten how difficult it is to create an hour's worth of entertaining content when you're sitting down in a room by yourself, staring at a wall and talking into a microphone, you know? <laughs> it's tough shit, man. It's not easy. Sometimes it goes really well. Sometimes I can sit down and just boom, there's an hour. Okay. I better stop before I, you know, talk about everything. Sometimes I'm 10 minutes in and I'm going, Oh shit. How the hell am I going to keep this going? And, and who's going to want to listen to it? Sip of water for the working man out there busting your asses. So where we're at, we're at, uh, we're at six minutes in now. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, when the time comes, the Patreon will be announced. Uh, I appreciate any help you can give me. Don't feel obligated. Please forgive me for asking you for it, but this is how I'm making a living now. I don't, I don't have any other income coming in. So, um, this is my, my thing. And, and all of this money is going to go towards a good cause, which is going to create a lot of entertainment for you. Hopefully in about 18 months. That's all I'm going to say. I won't say anything else about that for a while, but soon enough, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about that, and uh, I think you guys are going to dig it. It's pretty cool. I'm excited about it. <clears throat> now, who wants to get into some nonsense? Who wants to hear some nonsense? Oh, oh you guys do. You guys do. Okay, well, I guess we're going to go ahead and give you guys some, some nonsense. <laughs> Sorry, I got a new thing. It's got a soundboard on it that's like, uh, it's got these cool buttons. And, uh, and I, I want to play with them, but you know, I don't want to, don't want to like overdo it, but they're just, they're fucking rad. There you go. Okay. That's enough. <laughs> so to start out the episode today, let me tell you about the day that Captain Nick, the finest pirate captain cruising the seven seas today. Let me tell you about the time he took his first ship. That's right. In the year 2020. A year of chaos and fire and dumpsters everywhere. Captain Nick achieved a lifelong goal of pirates worldwide. Excuse me, worldwide and historical in nature. I was blessed. Uh, one of my dearest, closest, longest-term friends, Mister Danger Shoop, uh, offered me a chance to take a cruise on a 132-foot-long, 25-foot-wide, 10-foot draft wooden sailing ship built uh, based on a, on a, on a ship um, from the late 1800s called the Galilee. The new ship, when it was uh, finally, uh, uh, finally launched in 2018, 
Um, it was named the Matthew Turner, who was the man that designed and built the Galilee way back in 1891, just a few short years after my house was built, 11 years after my house was built. Very exciting. <laughs> so we had the opportunity to go on this ship. It was a very small group for obvious COVID-related reasons. Um, and thankfully, this was one of those situations where you're pumped to have a mask on because you're out on the bay. It's a little chilly. Um, so your face is nice and warm. You don't have to worry about nothing. Um, so we go down to Sausalito where the ship is moored. We hang out for a minute, have a quick lunch, you know, just Matt and I right there on the, on the little benches. And then we board the ship. We hear a little bit about what they've got going on. They're very proud of the fact that the ship is, um, an environmentally sustainable kind of ship. What that means is all of their timbers were built with responsibly grown and harvested wood. Um, all of their systems and all that are designed to be as environmentally friendly as possible, including, um, so it's a sailing ship, but it's also got an engine on it. And the way that engine, I don't have the paperwork in front of me, unfortunately, but they have, um, what's, it's essentially what it is where they can click it into a certain gear and just the ship sailing through the water will turn the propellers and the, just the motion of those propellers turning based on the water passing through them will actually charge the battery banks on the ship, which is pretty freaking cool. So you can run this thing as an engine, and then you could do it as the opposite as well, where instead of spending energy, it's, it's, it's making it. Uh, you know, it's, it's bringing it in. So pretty neat stuff. But for me, um, as much as I like the environmental stuff, as much as I like hearing about it, I like that they're doing it, that's not my focus. My focus is on the fact that I have been around tall ships before. I have seen them in ports. I have seen them cruising. Um, I have set foot on them when they are safely moored. I have never once been on board a tall ship outside of Disneyland that is actually cruising the seven seas under sail power. This was the, this was the opportunity. This was the chance I was going to get for it. So I, uh, we boarded the ship. We heard their little speech. We got ourselves comfortable. We started talking to some of the crew. Um, Matt is, is a boat guy just like me. Our friendship was built on boats. That's we, we, we met and, and fell in love. Um, which I don't think it embarrasses him anymore when I say that, but initially that was part of the reason our friendship started is because I used to embarrass him by telling him how much I loved him when we were in uniform. Um, (laughs) I love you. Say it back. Say it. So that's another story I'll tell you later. If you want to hear that story, leave me a note in the comments, shoot me a message or whatever, and tell me you want to hear the story about me expressing my love for... Matt Shoup and embarrassing the hell out of him in front of several hundred of his town's residents. Um, so we get aboard the boat. We're talking boat stuff. We're listening to the crew, calling commands, you know, call and response and, and working all the lines and getting the sails up and, and just the whole, the whole organization of this crew getting everything together. And uh, once we get out on the water, it's a little bit of a, uh, <clears throat> it's a powerful experience for me because we were on the same waterways I used to work. We're on the same waterways that apart from taking a ferry boat across the bay to go to a baseball game, I haven't been aboard, aboard a ship on those waters. It's been one time in 10 years I've been out there. And that's a place that I was always very happy. I love it out there, you know. And so going out and doing it on this ship, doing it on a beautiful day, we had the absolute perfect San Francisco Bay weather. And being able to do it with Matt um, was, was really cool and really impactful for me. So we're out there, we're cruising, it's incredible, I'm shooting videos, we're taking pictures, we're laughing and joking, we're making friends as best we can with the people that are, you know, kind of around the boat, you know, as we're all trying to keep our distances and move around so people can get the pictures they want and see everything, and um, thankfully, like I said, it was a very small group, everybody was very responsible and respectful, so we were all able to kind of just make it work, uh, plenty of space aboard the deck as well, which <laughs> was convenient. Um, so as we were cruising, we, we had kind of 
we weren't sure if we were actually going to be able to go out under the Golden Gate Bridge. It all depended on tides, you know, if we were going to have clearances and, and all that kind of stuff. And as it turns out, we got lucky. And we go down, uh, go down to, uh, the shoreline of, of Sausalito there and, and uh, cross the bay, and we're kind of over by Chrissy Field, and, and, and we turn towards the gate, and we start heading towards it. And Matt and I both look at each other like, no way. No way we're going to get to do this. For a boat guy to take a sailing vessel like that underneath the Golden Gate Bridge, which as far as I'm concerned, and ever since I was a little child, that bridge is the gateway to the world. Once you cross under that bridge, you leave the safe harbor of the San Francisco Bay, which is a challenging body of water all on its own. But um, once you leave that safe harbor and you cross under the gate into the potato patch, which is a, a, a tumultuous piece of water, to say the least, you're on your way and you can go anywhere. I used to go sit down there by the bridge and uh, I would bring a chair and I'd bring a six pack of beer and I'd bring a sandwich or whatever. And I'd bring Toby. And you know, when my, when my head was a mess, when I wasn't feeling good, when I was feeling trapped or whatever, I would go down there and I would sit and I had an app on my phone where I could watch every ship coming and going out of that, uh, out of that, that gate. And I could see where they were headed. I could see all kinds of information about the ship, where they're flagged out of, where they're headed, you know, what cargo they've got. Um, it was a really neat thing and it was really great for me at the time because it was just a place to go dream. I would dream about what's it like to be on that ship. Where's it going? What's it going to see? What kind of challenges are they going to face? What's going on with the crew? How many guys are aboard? Where are they going to go after they end up in Japan or Taiwan or Australia or San Diego or wherever they're going? Um, so Matt and I look at each other and even through the masks, you could see the big smile, the eyes crinkle up, <laughs> you know, you could see the, the childlike glee just radiating off of both of us. I think I can speak for Matt when crossing under that bridge, which we've both done a million times. I mean, I used to patrol that bridge just as a part of my daily duties. We'd go check the towers and check the abutments and or the, uh, the, the bases of the towers and, and, you know, do all the Homeland Security stuff and, you know, responding to all the different things that happen on that bridge. But this was a different moment. This was, uh, this was just being able to kind of feel a piece of history under your feet. You don't have to worry about the sound of engines. It's just you and the waves. <clears throat> and uh, I'm feeling some emotion as I'm talking about it. It's pretty cool. It's a nice feeling. Um, so we cross under, and I know I, I held my breath. And it, 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 there was a physical feeling to it. You know, it was powerful. And we just go out a little bit into the patch, and we turn back around, we come on back under, and, and we're just cruising back and taking our time, you know, take a wide swing out into the bay, and then we're going to cross near Angel Island, the southwestern tip of Angel Island, and uh, and then head back into the harbor to close out our day. Two hours or three hours, whatever it was, we were out there. And at one point, um, we go dead in the water, which just means the boat's not moving anywhere. We're just holding station. And we're near that southwestern tip of Angel Island, which for me is, it's not a place I'm terribly comfortable because that's where my injury occurred. There's a little beach over there, and that's where bad things happened and I still deal with the, the consequences of that to this day. And Matt knows that, you know, he knows. And so we were talking and I, I guess I kind of got quieter when he got to mention, we, we just noticed where we were. And so I was trying to distract myself talking to the crew and, and the lead crewman on the deck, the guy managing the deck that day was a guy coincidentally called Nick, um, who's been sailing since he's like six years old. He's been all over the world. He taught on a, a, a sailing ship with a crew of like 600 people. And the, the ship was a high school. So you do all your high school stuff and you learn how to operate this tall ship and you go on these voyages. And 
I go, man, I, I, if I had known about that when I was in high school, I would have been gone. <laughs> you know, the normal classes never really interested. I love to learn, but the normal stuff never interested me. Doing school like that would have changed my world. Um, so I'm glad I get to hear about it now. I'm glad there are kids doing it. So Nick and I are talking. A couple of the younger crew are relatively new high school kids, I'm sure, 17, 18 years old. Um, real nice kids. And, and Matt mentioned something about me being a pirate. And and one of the, the younger crew people, she looks at me and she goes, wait, you're a pirate? And I was like, yeah. And she goes, I'm a pirate too. And I was like, what's up, fist bump? You know, like, how you doing? So we became friends. We started talking. And I had brought with me one of my smaller beard and bones flags. I got, I got my full size one. And then I have, I mean, I've given a bunch of them away over the years to important people. And God knows if they still have them or not. But I hope they're treasured with them as much as they are me. Um, I've still got, I think, two left. So one of them, I, I always bring with me when I go somewhere cool or do something neat because I love having pictures of my beard and bones flag in cool places. Um, you know, I've got one of the beard and bones flag laying across the DMZ between the Koreas. I've got um, pictures of the beard and bones flag being held atop the towers of the Golden Gate Bridge. I've got a picture of my uh, my captain's coin being held in the, in the cockpit of a fighter jet over some foreign country uh, by a real badass female fighter pilot. Um, it's just neat stuff, and, it, and it's things that make me feel good. It makes me feel like even though I can't get out and explore the world the way I want to right now, um, there are people out there doing it, and they're taking a piece of me with them. So I brought my little flag. I pulled it out and show. I'm like, ah, oh, it's my beard and bones. It's my colors. And Nick, the crewman, looks at me, and he goes, you want to run it up the mast? And I, I kind of pause, and I go, I'm sorry. Did you just ask me if I want to run my flag up the mast? And he's like, yeah. And I go, yeah, of course I do. I didn't, I wasn't going to, like, I didn't think that was an option. And he goes, yeah, yeah, come on. So he walks me back to the stern of the ship where the captain is. And we talk to her and, and just show her the flag. And he goes, Hey captain, just want to get your permission to run this up the flagpole. You know, just a you know, little pirate flag. And she looks at it and she goes, what flag is that? I go, what's well, my, my personal colors. And she goes, beard and bones. And I was like, yep. And she goes, cool, run it up. So now I'm, I mean, I thought I was giddy going underneath the bridge. I thought I was giddy, giddy setting foot on the boat. I thought I was giddy being back on the water again. No, 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 no. You put all those together and then you double them. It doesn't even come close to the feeling I felt walking back up along the starboard side of that ship. Back up to the line. He pulls the line off. He ties my flag on. And he runs it up. And he runs it up. And he runs it up. And next thing I know... My little beard and bones flag, my personal colors, my personal standard, my sigil is flying atop the mast of a 132-foot-long wooden sailing ship. I've seen the beard and bones do a lot of cool things, but seeing the beard and bones in its natural environment, flapping in the breeze, on my waters, with my boat guy partner, and most importantly right there off of that fucking beach man that was i'm tearing up right now that was such a moment and a feeling of triumph for me and it's a real silly thing but for me it was really poignant and i sat there and i was leaning against the rail and i they let that thing fly for the rest of the voyage which i thought was really freaking cool of them um and of course everybody else is all excited like what's going on here like what's this all about so i I got to tell everybody and you know showed off my coin and uh, my nfq coin and um, all that kind of good stuff. And um, I'm leaning on the rail and I'm looking up at the flag and it's flapping in the, in the wind and everybody else has kind of gone back to their thing. And Matt's standing right next to me and I go, holy shit, dude. And he goes, what's that? And I go, I just realized something. I didn't have to fire a shot. I didn't have to raise my voice. I didn't have to do anything. 
All I had to do was be here and be the captain. And by the, the ancient rights of mariners, sailors, and pirates worldwide, as soon as your flag is flying, that ship belongs to you. That's what that means. And he's kind of looking at me and I go, so what that means is that Captain Nick just took his first ship. Ooh, that still gives me goosebumps. <laughs> that was a very proud moment for me, and that's one that I'm going to carry with me for a very long time. Um, you know, that's just one of those things that I never thought I'd get to see it, and there it was. And it's heavy. It's heavy shit, man. It, it's really freaking cool. So very grateful about that. Um, all right. There we go. So um, there's some pictures on my Instagram of that. Um, I have one that at some point I'm going to hire somebody to do a painting of, of one of the shots I took just because it was too freaking cool not to. And uh, I spoke with the crew of the ship, and they've invited me back. And I was told that next time I come, I need to bring the full-size flag, and there's a very good chance I will do it in full pirate regalia. I promise you I will be keeping you all tuned on that. <laughs> all right, next segment, next segment, next segment. So those of you that remember Nonsense Season 1 know that right before it all stopped, I had started a series I was calling the Lost Treasures series. And what that is, is that's just me being fascinated with the fact that in this day and age, in the modern world with GPS and computers and, and, and maps and, and everybody knowing where everything is, and there's really no, no, no secrets anymore, it feels like, there are still hidden treasures out there. There are still people out there in the world trying to preserve a little bit of the magic all of our discovery and knowledge is taking away. And I really respect that. So um, I had done two uh, two editions of that series. Um, I did one about a lost ship in the desert, in the Sonora Desert of California. And I did one that I don't have. Interesting. All right, well, there was two, two I've done before, so today's going to be number three of that. Um, we're going to start the treasure series right in the middle. <laughs> so I invite you to join me as we learn about the lost fe- uh, the lost treasure of Forrest Finn. The man behind the treasure is Forrest Finn, an 85-year-old millionaire, former Vietnam fighter pilot, self-taught archaeologist, and successful art dealer in Santa Fe, New Mexico. He'd had such a good time searching for, finding, and collecting over his life that he wanted to share the experience. So he designed a hunt, chose his treasure, drove out across the Rocky Mountains, and hid the chest. There's 265 gold coins, eagles, and American double eagles, he said of the chest contents, and there's hundreds and hundreds of gold nuggets. You're going to be amazed at what you find. The ornate Romanesque box is 10 by 10 inches and weighs about 40 pounds when loaded. Finn has only only revealed that it is hidden in the Rocky Mountains, somewhere between Santa Fe and the Canadian border, at an elevation above 5,000 feet. It is not in a mine, graveyard, or near a structure. For further clues, you have to read the poem in his self-published book, The Thrill of the Chase. He wrote a poem with nine clues placing the treasure somewhere in the Rockies in one of four states, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, or New Mexico. I have that poem here with me right now as I have gone alone in there and with my treasures bold I can keep my secret where 
and hint of riches new and old. Begin it where warm waters halt, and take it in the canyon down. Not far, but too far to walk. Put in below the home of Brown. From there it's no place for the meek. The end is ever drawing nigh. There'll be no paddle up your creek, just heavy loads and water high. If you've been wise and found the blaze, look quickly down your quest to cease. But tarry scant with marvel gaze. Just take the chest and go in peace. So why is it that I must go and leave my trove for all to seek? The answer's I already know. I've done it tired, and now I'm weak. So hear me all and listen good. Your effort will be worth the cold. If you are brave and in the wood, I can give you title to the gold. No one knows where the treasure chest is but me, Fenn says. If I die tomorrow, the knowledge of that location goes in the coffin with me. Now, ten years after publication of the poem, tens of thousands of people have reportedly gone looking for Fenn's treasure, thought to be worth well over a million dollars. I love antiques, particularly American Indian, he says. In the 1990s, he was criticized by Southwestern archaeologists over his excavation of a Pueblo Indian site that he owned. They consider him a plunderer. Fenn thinks they're clubby fuss budgets. <laughs> That's the type of insult you just don't get anymore, do you? Clubby fuss budgets. F-U-S-S-B-U-D-G-E-T-S. Clubby fuss budgets. What the hell is a clubby fuss budget? I'll have to look that up. Maybe we'll have to do a segment about old-timey insults, huh? I uh, should probably take a note of that. Old-timey insults. There, I've taken a note. It's barely legible, but all figured out after the show. <laughs> the war over Indian relics has largely subsided. Today, Fenn is all about the treasure. He says he hid the box in the midst of the Great Recession to cheer folks up and to get them off their couches and into the great outdoors. Sure, I'm eccentric, he says. I pride myself on being eccentric. I don't want to go down the center line like a lot of people do. And I think anybody that knows me, which is you if you're listening to this, um, they can tell you that uh, that's, that's, a, that's a mindset that I can relate to and I can really respect. Uh, for some, the hunt for the treasure can become an obsession. Randy Bill, you was a 54-year-old retired mechanic who had moved from Florida to Colorado to look for the box full-time. He was last seen alive on January 5th. Uh, I believe this was 2017. His car, a raft, and his little dog were found near the Rio Grande, south of Santa Fe. Finn is delighted the quest has motivated so many people to discover the Rocky Mountains, but he cautions. We don't want to get anybody else lost. Be prepared, take a GPS, take at least one other person with you, and wait until the snow and the ice melts. Is the treasure really worth risking your life over? Doug Preston is a best-selling author and a longtime friend of Fenn's. He says he saw the chest in the walk-in vault in Fenn's house before he hid it. And Preston can, can attest that it was filled with gold nuggets, gold coins, pre-Columbian gold figures, rubies, sapphires, emeralds, and diamonds. As far as proof goes that he hid the treasure, there's no proof, Preston says. He also lives in Santa Fe. Uh, it's hard to prove a negative. The negative is that the chest is gone. It's not in his house, and it's not in his vault. Also, knowing Forrest for as long as I have, I can absolutely say with 100% confidence that he would never pull off a hoax. 
I'm absolutely sure that he hid that treasure chest. And what this story doesn't mention is that there has been a lot of controversy about this, uh, about this chest and about the fact that it may not be real. The fact that there may not be a treasure at all. And there have been uh, multiple people that have gone on this hunt and died because they were inexperienced. They were incautious, whatever it may be. Um, so this guy is just vouching that, Hey, I know forest and, and this thing is definitely out there. A noted New Mexico archaeologist con- uh, contacted for this story says he too saw the treasure and he also believes Fenn is not a trickster. The searches read and reread the crypt- cryptic poem and pour over topographic maps, waiting for that aha moment. Then they trek through aspen forests, explore riverbanks, and rappel down cliffsides looking for, for the treasure. You go out, you look, you don't find it. You come back home, you go through your clues again, your solves again, and you think, where did I go wrong? Says Cynthia Meacham, a retired high-tech worker from Albuquerque who says she's been out at least 60 times looking for the treasure. And you go out and you do it again. And I've actually seen some of the most spectacular scenery because of this that I wouldn't ever have seen. And for that, Fenn would be pleased. Uh, there's an update to this story from this year, in fact. In June of, uh, June of 2020, uh, when Forrest Fenn was 89 years old, he announced that his treasure had been found. To the pr- surprise, shock, and condemnation of treasure hunter fans everywhere, um, he announced that it, uh, a mysterious man from back east, quote-unquote, uh, found the, the treasure and, and provided proof to him, including pictures of both the treasure and where it was found, um, and then actually brought the treasure chest to him to show it to him. Um, my understanding is that Forrest actually bought the chest back from him for over a million dollars, which was the estimated value. Um and Forrest said it was under a canopy of stars in the lush, forested vegetation of the Rocky Mountains, and it had not moved from, where, from the spot where I hid it more than 10 years ago. Now, when you think about the fact that this guy buried a literal treasure chest straight out of Treasure Island, rubies and sapphires and statues and jewelry and gold, and he just went and put it on the ground somewhere out in the middle of freaking nowhere, wrote a poem about it, and then said, here you go, guys, good luck. Shortly after the find, Forrest died, which only made the controversy worse. (laughs) The person who found it is just described as a man from back east. Nobody knows who he is. Nobody knows where he is, which obviously makes it very easy for people to say, well, he can't be real. Obviously, he's not real. Um, We'll never know. The treasure is gone. Forrest is gone. The man from back east has taken his money and gone back east. Um, So there you go. There's the story of Forrest Fenn's treasure. Um, I don't know if there are other lost treasures in that kind of vein floating in the world right now. Um, If there are, and you know about them, send them my way. I'd love to know more. Uh, Next time, we'll be talking about the Beale ciphers, which are going to be very, very interesting. I think you're all going to enjoy that. And now, before we move on to our next segment, I'd like to tell you a fast fact. Did you know... That as of 2014, the longest recorded time a chicken has been observed flying continuously is 13 seconds. The furthest recorded flight of a chicken covered 301.5 feet. I don't think your life is any better for knowing that, but now you know it. You're welcome. (laughs) 
All right, let's see. Next segment. Here's another piratical segment for you. We had a story about Captain Nick taking a ship. We had a story about lost treasure. We had a fun fact about chickens called Cluck Jaeger. And now I'm going to tell you about a famous pirate that you may not know about. Let me tell you the story now about a man known as Black Caesar. During the early 1700s, there was a legendary African pirate known for his huge size, immense strength, and keen intelligence. He had the strength and the stature of two men. Oh, boy. So, uh, this man, only known as Black Caesar now, he was a prominent war chieftain in West Africa. He evaded evaded capture by slave traders for years until he and his men were tricked onto a slave ship with the promise of riches too heavy and too numerous to bring on shore. He fell for the captain's trick, went aboard the ship, and was given a feast with food and wine and women and promises of treasure and glory. During the feast, the ship set sail, the crew above decks cast off, and before Caesar and his men knew what was happening, they were far out at sea and it was too late. Caesar and his men tried to fight back, but they were trapped and they were taken prisoner. While enslaved aboard the ship, Caesar befriended one of the crew and would only accept food or water from him and him alone. When their ship neared the Florida Keys, Caesar's men had died. It was just Caesar now. The ship was besieged by a hurricane and looked like it was going to sink. Much to his benefit, the friendship with that, that anonymous crewman paid off. He rushed below decks and freed Caesar. The overpa- they, between the two of them, decided to team up. They overpowered the captain and the crew, boarded a longboat with supplies and ammunition, and escaped, leaving the captain and crew to their doom. They soon began using the lifeboat to lure passing ships, which stopped to give assistance. They would sail out into the channel, look like they were out there lost and alone, in, in great danger. As soon as the ships would stop to give them aid, they would take over. While posing as shipwrecked sailors, they would sail out to the vessel offering to take them aboard. Once they were close to the vessel, they brought out their guns and demanded supplies and ammunition, threatening to sink the ship if they were refused. He and the sailor continued this ploy for a number of years and amassed a sizable amount of treasure, which was buried on Elliot Key. However, he and the sailor had a falling out over a young woman the mate had brought back from one of the ships they had looted. It always comes back to a woman with men like these. They can be the tightest of teams with treasure Death, destruction. As soon as a beautiful woman comes into the picture, they lose all sense of reason. They argued over her because each wanted to, wanted to claim her as his own. As they were fighting, Caesar killed his longtime friend in a duel and took her as his own. Soon he began taking on more pirates and soon was able to attack ships on the open sea with his large crew. They were often able to avoid capture by running into Caesar Creek and other inlets between Elliot and Old Road's Key and onto the Mangrove Islands, where the larger ships or the less experienced crews could not follow. Using a metal ring embedded in a rock, they ran a strong rope through the ring and heeled the boat over onto its side. They would just pull that whole thing over, lay it on its side so it would hide. Their pursuers would be looking for the mast. They'd be looking for this enormous ship, but it was laid down horizontal. They couldn't freaking see it. They would hide their boat in the water until the patrol ship or whatever danger went away. They might also lower the mast and sink the ship in shallow water, later cutting the rope or pumping out the water to raise the boat and continue raiding. It is thought that he and his men buried 26 bars of silver on the island, although no treasure has ever been recovered from that site. Imagine the ingenuity and the courage it takes to go out and do this kind of thing with the plan that 
hey, we're going to hide by sinking our boat. And then once the bad guys are gone, we can just pump that thing back out in the 1700s, raise that back up, get her all dried off, put the mask back on, and boom, we're back to pirating. Legend has it he built a harem on his island, having up to 100 women seized from passing ships, as well as a prison camp in which he kept prisoners and stone huts in the hopes of ransoming them. Lucrative trade going on here. When leaving the island to go on raids, he left no provisions for these prisoners, and many eventually starved to death. A few children reportedly escaped captivity, subsisting on berries and shellfish, and formed their own language and customs. The Society of Lost Children gave rise to native superstition that the island is haunted. Imagine being a native of these islands. You're living your life, you're fishing, you're cooking, you're hunting, you're building things, you're doing whatever whatever you got to do to survive and, and keep yourself going. Without having any knowledge <clears throat> that Black Caesar's out here patrolling, that there's piracy working on your island, anything like that, all of a sudden out in the woods at night, out on the coast at night, you start hearing children's voices. Maybe you're walking down a path on your way home. It's late, it's dark, you're watching out for animals. Everything's okay, but you start hearing little tittering of children's voices in the bushes off to your left. No such thing as a flashlight yet. You've only got a torch. That's only so good. You're certainly not going to go after there poking around with your torch to try and figure out what's in these bushes. Real easy to see how they would start believing in ghosts and ghoulies. During the early 18th century, Caesar left Biscayne Bay to join Blackbeard himself, Edward Teach, in raiding American shipping in the Mid-Atlantic. He served as lieutenant aboard Blackbeard's ship, the, the Queen Anne's Revenge. In 1718, Blackbeard famously uh, met his end at the Ocracoke Inlet. Highly recommend reading about that. If you want to hear about it, let me know in the comments. I'll tell you the story. Uh, in 1718, after Blackbeard's death battling with Lieutenant Robert Maynard at Ocracoke Island, he attempted to set off the powder magazine as per Blackbeard's instructions. I'm going to die, and on my way out, I want you to make sure my ship blows up and everybody goes with it. However, Caesar was stopped by one of the captives who tackled him as he prepared to light a trail of gunpowder leading to the magazine. He struggled with the man below decks until several of Maynard's sailors were able to restrain him. Taken prisoner by Virginia colonial authorities, he was convicted of piracy and hanged in Williamsburg. And so ends the legend of Black Caesar. What a life. Can you imagine? Certainly shows a little bit of the democracy of sorts aboard pirate ships at the time that a man who was kidnapped as a slave, brought to America, escaped on his own, built himself an empire, and then went to work for the most dominant, uh, most successful pirate around at the time, rose to the ranks of lieutenant, and was trusted with such an important task at the end. Fascinating stuff. Clearly a man with leadership ability, intelligence, and a little bit of cunning to go with his ruthlessness. Had a career path in the piracy. Um, all right, before we close out the show today, 39 minutes in, that's pretty good. I think we got another couple of minutes in us here. <clears throat> before we close it out today, I'm going to tell you a little bit about um, a very, very important part of any sailing pirate tall ship world. Long, long ago, uh, before machines were a thing, everything was done with the power of men. Many, many men sometimes, sometimes very few men. They used pulleys. They used all kinds of uh, equipment and, uh, and things, um, gadgets and gizmos to make these jobs easier. But still, you know, you're out there trying to raise a sail, which weighs several hundred pounds. 
you're on a heaving sea. You've got bad weather everywhere. Everything's wet. You've, you've got to get that damn sail up, though. So you got to figure out how to do it. One of the ways they were able to coordinate work amongst large groups of sailors as they were doing these things was with what are called sea shanties, work songs. They've been used in lots of different places in the world, but they are, I think, most famous for being used aboard ships. A sea shanty is a type of work song that was once commonly sung to accompany labor on board large merchant sailing vessels. The term shanty most accurately refers to a specific style of work song belonging to this historical repertoire. However, in recent popular usage, the scope of its definition is sometimes expanded to admit a wider range of repertoire and characteristics, or refer to a maritime work song in general. Shanties had antecedents in the working chants of British and other national maritime traditions, such as low sung while manually loading vessels with cotton in ports in the southern United States. Shanty repertoire borrowed from the contemporary popular music enjoyed by sailors. This is their top 40. This is their uh, Taylor Swift, Drake, and uh, whoever else is cool right now. I'm old. I don't know. (laughs) Shanty repertoire borrowed from the contemporary popular music enjoyed by sailors, including minstrel music, popular marches, and land-based folk songs, which were then adapted to suit musical forms matching the various labor tasks required to operate a sailing ship. Such tasks, which usually required a coordinated group effort in either pulling or pushing action, included weighing anchor and setting sail. The shanty genre was typified by flexible lyrical forms, which in practice provided for much improvisation and the ability to lengthen or shorten a song to match the circumstances. These are highly versatile pieces of music. You can use it for any of these different tasks. The whole idea is just to make sure a group of people are all working in tandem. You get on the beat, you get on the melody, you get on the rhythm, and then you can do whatever you need to do, right? Uh, Its hallmark was the call and response performed between a soloist and the rest of the workers in chorus. The leader, called the shantyman, was appreciated for his piquant language, lyrical wit, and strong voice. These are men of creative talent. These are men of quick wit. These are men with strong voices that could be heard above the wind and the noises of the ship and and, and nature. Uh, You look at freestyle battle rappers now. It's essentially the same thing. These are people who, who can who can use words and music to accomplish a specific goal without having to plan ahead. They've got the skill, they've got the talent already, and they can put it together on the fly as quick as you can think. Incredibly, incredibly respectable. It's it's a challenging thing to do, and I and I, I really admire people that are able to. Shanties were sung without uh, instrumental accompaniment, and historically speaking, they were only sung in work-based rather than entertainment-oriented contexts. Although most prominent in English, shanties have been created or or translated uh, into other European languages. Now, a lot of times you'll see shanties at ship festivals and portside things where you'll get a couple of guys who are really into this, usually old guys, um, who will get together and they'll sing these together. They'll try to gather crowds on the ports. You don't have to be a good singer as long as you have someone who knows what they're doing who can follow. The more people you get going, the better it is because now you've got a big chorus. And even if you're somebody like me who cannot sing well, you kind of blend in, but your voice gets, you know, adds something, you know, you, uh, it becomes a, a better than the sum of its parts kind of deal, right? Um, so today, to close out the show, I'm, I'm going to do all my closing stuff. Stay tuned for after the, the, the credits here um, because I am going to go ahead and leave you. Actually, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and leave you at the end one of my favorite uh, sea shanties. I highly recommend you look this one up on YouTube because it's just fun to watch the guy sing it. Um, so it's, it's by a man called David Coffin, who's one of the, the modern, um, shantymen as they're known. 
um, who's kind of keeping the tradition alive and finding ways to to expand it and all that. Um, so this is a song called Roll the Old Chariot. Uh, it's a shanty that originated as an African-American spiritual, as most of these did, um, or many of them, rather. It was often used as a stamp-and-go or a walk-away shanty, meaning the sailors would hold on to the line and walk with it, creating a steady pull. This was used in ship's braces, which swung the yards around. It was also used at the downtown pumps, the giant flywheels, which resemble the wheels of a chariot. The song was also popular on shore and has been used as a Salvation Army hymn and a pep song at baseball games, which is interesting. I didn't know that before I, uh, before I did a little research for this. So to close out the show today, um, you know, you'll have the end music. Once that's over, I'm going to drop in Roll the Old Chariot just so you can get a taste of it. Listen to it for a minute. Look it up on YouTube. David Coffin is, is a big one. And, uh, oh, Lord, what is that man's name? Of course I can't remember it right now when I want to. There's another great, here it is. Another great shantyman and a shanty that I highly recommend you look at is called uh, Barrett's Privateers by a man called Stan Rogers. Um, so, Stay tuned. Uh, That's going to be coming as soon as we finish the credits. As we close the show today, I want to thank you for tuning in. I want to thank you for joining me for nonsense. I want to thank you for supporting all the nonsensical entertainment I try to put out for you. At some point soon, I'm going to put up a Patreon for now. Please do me a favor. If you want to support me, if you enjoy any of this, if you get any value out of it, please tell your friends. Please post about it on social media. Or if nothing else, please just tell me you like it because it'll boost my confidence. It'll keep me motivated. It'll make it easier to keep doing this if I know people are getting something out of it. For now, I'm getting something out of it, and that's going to have to be enough. Um, if you want more from Captain Nick, tune on, uh, tune into Instagram, IGTV. I have a show called Captain's Court. Always looking for new cases. Feel free to submit through email, beardandbones at gmail.com, B-E-A-R-D, the letter N, B-O-N-E-S at gmail.com, or beardandbones on Instagram, B-E-A-R-D, the letter N, B-O-N-E-S, Instagram. You know where to find me. You guys know me. So I've got a show called Captain's Court, which is me as the captain wearing a top hat and a judge's robe, banging a gavel, and settling your cases. You send me your cases, I'll settle them for you. It could be anything. It could be a dispute between a loved one or a family member. It could be um, something silly you thought of. It could be blah, 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 whatever. As long as it's something fun, I can kind of sink my teeth into and, and play with or give you some good advice on. I also have a series that uh, that's relatively early right now, but that I'm calling Grown Up Grade Schooler, which is me doing book reports and product reviews and whatever other silly stuff I can think of as a grade schooler. Awkward, uncomfortable, whatever. Um, so thank you for supporting. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for contributing to nonsense. Um, oh, before we go, <clears throat> if you have articles, topics, thoughts that you would like to, to hear about or to see featured here on Nonsense, send them over. You know the email address, okay? Always, always looking for, uh, for assistance in the form of new stories, new articles, new ideas. What do you like? What do you hate? And on and on and on. <clears throat> all right, that's all I got. I'm going to stop bugging you guys. I'm going to stop... Stop wasting time. Thank you for coming to Nonsense the Show. This has been episode 202, season two of Nonsense. More nonsense for your noise. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time. As always, my name is Captain Nick. I'm your captain. I'm your judge. I'm your host. But most importantly, I am your friend. See you next time. I'll see you at sunrise. <laughs>